Oh, we love you so deeply, Jesus. In this crazy world we live in, where chaos reigns supreme, uncertainty is our bedfellow, anxiety drives every day in the car with us. We come to a moment where we can breathe, where we are reminded that you are good, that we are in submission to you, wonderful Jesus, kind God, redeeming Savior, Holy Spirit, that you are the great comforter. And this evening as we gather around the scriptures and we tell stories just of how wonderful you are, let it always be that you get the glory that, that you deserve, that our lips may be overshadowed by praise, that praise would be easy because we have a story today of just how sublime you've been. Grant me grace as I speak that my tongue will be the pen of a ready writer is what the poet of the scriptures said. And uh, may it be tonight soul-stirring, soul-healing, soul-energizing truth from your text. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so a bit of context is helpful, especially for those of you who are new here tonight. Um, we just finished the series going through the book of Mark. We do love the scriptures deeply. Um, it is our anchor and uh, it is the yardstick against which we measure all things. And uh, I just said to the team, Dana and Tyler and Sam, uh, we'd be kind of the little, little uh, staff team. I said, I'd love to take 10 weeks and put into us as a community 10 things that really matter to me as a father. If you've heard me say anything besides how wonderful Jesus is, you will hear me talk about myself as a dad. That really is who I am and what I am. It brings me the greatest amount of joy biologically and spiritually. And um, I, I just sat down. Um, John Mark Holmes is a, a dear friend, and I, and I uh, reference him because I will quote him in just a bit. And uh, we were talking about the rule of life, the whole Benedictine approach, the Benedictine order, and... Um, and I thought, gee, do I have a rule of life? Here, all these young, clever people have got all these super fancy things. And I thought, I don't know if I have a rule of life, but I know that there are some things that really matter to me. There's some things I wanted to put into my three kids. There's some things I wanted to put into the two previous churches that we led. And uh, the one I'd love to put into all of you at some level, shape or form. And uh, so very kindly, the team said, go for it. So the first week... Some time ago, I spoke on a life of devotion, and I won't um, repeat all of that. That's my, the error of my ways, is to repeat what I've already said. And then two weeks ago, I spoke about a life crafted by calling, career versus calling. But you know, I want to take you on a little bit of a history ride. Do you mind? I'm a history major, so I love nerding out on history. So for those of you for whom history has no interest, my only apology is you had a really bad teacher. It's not the content, the material, or the story. It's been poorly taught, seemingly around a bunch of facts that no one can really remember, but we miss the great meta-narrative of history. And um, the 5th century, and I will be brief-ish, the 5th century was a, was a very compelling century because it was the the demise of, of the Roman Empire. And uh, for those of you who don't know much about it, uh, Caesar changed the, uh, the, um, the, 
the Roman world into a, from a republic into an empire. He became king and ruled and was profound and changed the world and they reached all the way to Scotland, the Hadrian Wall on the east and all the way stopped by the Mongolians in the, in the west, that way, opposite way around. And um, in the 400s, about 463 I think, the barbarians sacked Rome. Now you're saying, Chris, what on earth does that have to do with me? Well, give me a moment. It was the end of a civilization. Everything that was became, was slowly imploding. Gibbon's reasons for the, for the d demise of the Roman Empire, P.S., should in no way surprise us of what's happening in our world today. Chaos reigned supreme. Political order imploded. Economic vulnerability was rampant. The uncertainty of what was happening in life today was, was, was paraded out there as the barbarians just forced their way down Italy and uh, spread themselves, some settling in, in Spain, some settling in France. It was brutal. But two voices in the 5th century were sublime. The first was Patrick. And we all know because on St. Patrick's Day we have Guinness, they wear shamrocks, no idea why most people, but they enjoy the Guinness and the party. But Patrick arrived as a young Englishman, as a 16-year-old, he was a slave, and was held captive for six years. He learned the crazy tribalism and the incredible destruction that it brought. He watched it closely, escaped, and felt God appear to him in a dream through an angel called Victoricus. And Victoricus came to him, and spoke to him, and he heard while Victoricus was speaking to him, the cry and the plea of the Irish people, come and shepherd us again, come and be with us again. And it turned it, so here was uh, um, Ireland, made up of Celts, tribalism, hating each other, fighting insistently, no common ground, no commonality, and in he stepped, and he did two things. One, he created monasteries, and two, he created a mobilization of young people in global mission. Now again, you might say to me, Chris, what does this have to do with anything? See, I think we are living at the most incredibly exciting moment for the church in this nation. The last few years have seen the white evangelical church, sadly, in America, sadly, we've seen its demise. We don't have credibility. Our voice is not heard. There was too strong an association with a one individual political voice and a particular political party. And so much more. Racism. And all that that brought. And, and as I looked at that, I have been so compelled by the parallel between Patrick of Ireland and the chaos of a nation and some of the chaos we've seen in the last two years. No political statement there. I'm not for or against. I'm describing a scenario that's so similar to the one we're in. And I have some of you come to me and say, Chris, I don't know if I can do church anymore. The white evangelical church has set me back. I don't even know if I believe it anymore. And it could be that such displeasure and such brokenheartedness can overwhelm us at this time, and then I peep through the corridors of history, and I say, no, absolutely not. We have seen this before. A new church emerged. A vibrant, young, passionate, radical church of men and women and boys and girls who felt compelled by Jesus, their Redeemer, 
changed the way they lived. Ireland, by all historical accounts, became a nation with order, civility, government, education, health. It all emerged out of the 5th century proclamation of the gospel to a Celtic tribal land that was fraught with death and tribalism. At the same time, in North Africa of all places, St. Augustine wrote his book, his now extremely famous book, The City of God. As the Roman Empire and its implosion and the church with it overwhelmed them, he here in Alexandria, North Africa, wrote that book and described the difference between the city of God and the city of man. What it looks like when man is left to his own devices and what he crafts and architects on the one hand, and on the other hand, when the city of God submits itself to the text. Guys and girls, I can't explain to you the enthusiasm with which I see the moment we live in. Am I saddened by the demise of the white evangelical church in this nation? Heck yes. My privilege is that I can peep over the hedge and see what God is doing elsewhere. Right now in Iran, in persecuted Iran, they say it's the fastest growing church anywhere in the world where small groups of men and women, many of them led by women, which is not very familiar in a patriarchal culture, are gathering together as they meet the Messiah. They don't call Him Jesus. They don't call Him Yeshua. They call Him Messiah. And they have discovered Him and they rally together and they meet together at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning when the authorities don't know that they meet. And there is this incredible wave of Jesus worship in Iran right now because the white lined, uh, not white as per skin color, the sense, the sublime, the Shekinah presence of God is coming down and meeting with them in the most remarkable way. I understand, I repeat, why you could feel so discouraged by the church at this time. I am the bearer of good news. For those who want to hear, if you want to remain a cynic and skeptic, I honestly have no hope for you. Meryl and I have been married 40 years. And one of the things that I hate when, when we are eye to belly button, you know those relational moments where you just can't get each other? And then I get in my mind XYZ about something about Meryl. And you know what? It just confirms it every day. Every day something tells me, you see, that is the way she is. I'm sure she has that all the time with me. Because the moment we attune our vision towards the broken and the limited and the unhelpful, we will see it all around us. But when our eyes see something else, when our eyes are compelled by something way more spectacular. And I want to be part of that. I, I, I was text exchanging with someone in the community this week. And uh, she voiced her concern. She doesn't know if she can come to church. She doesn't know if she can be part of community, etc., etc. And I said, texted back to her, love her deeply. I texted back to her. I said, you know, over 50% of marriages end up in divorce right now. Why would you want to get married? Well, the reason why you want to get married is you want to create a different story. You don't want to bow to what everyone else is doing. You want to say, no, no, I can have a different marriage. I can have a marriage of kindness and goodness and love and forgiveness and respect and honor and mutual support and mutual benefit. I can do a different story. You with me? 
So we've got a choice. Do we bow to what is obvious, apparent, real and true? A broken church? Or can we write another story? Benedictine. Benedict, from which we get the Benedictine order, was also around during that time. From accounts, he was a very humble man, very quiet man, quite shy. Did not like the limelight. And the accounts are of him believing in amidst the implosion. Remember the barbarians and who knows exactly what it looked like. And we've seen a lot of barbarianism in our country in the last year. And into that context of death and decay and rape and murder and pillaging and sacking, the great sacking of Rome, Benedictine, Benedict gathered a group of believers together in what became known as a monastery. That's what he did. He gathered them together to create the alternative society. And then he wrote his Benedict Order, around which all monasteries would govern themselves, rule themselves, and create this kind of bumper rail for how to do life in a very, very broken world. One more quick analogy. In the 1940s, most of you know of a, of a man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer. One of my heroes. Love him. Um, but sufficient to say in the light of what we're doing, he was superbly employed here in New York. He had no reason to go back to Nazi Germany in the late 30s. In fact, everyone pleaded with him, please don't go back. When the, when the church aligned itself with Hitler and the, the party, the, the Nazi party, um, he began to be, him and Karl Barth and Niemöller became uh, some of the few who raised their voices in dissent. So the church sided with the tyrant. I don't know if that sounds familiar. But what happened, what happened was the decimation of the church and he gathered together, let me pronounce this correctly. He gathered together a group of young people in a community at a place called Finkenwalder. There we go. And he trained them up to be the conspiracy, the Christ conspiracy that would stand up against the status quo and create the alternative culture. My dear friend, where do you want to be? Do you want to be the cynic critic who watches with eyes of criticism or do you want to get into the game? Do you want to be part of those who create the alternative reality? Those who are saying what's written here in the Bible is exactly what we want to do and where we want to be. Are you with me? Romans 12, please. Romans 12. I'm going to take a few moments and walk us through some of the beauty that Paul writes in this magnificent piece of literature. Ask God to soften your heart as I speak. Because my heart was hard. I, I, I would watch something on TV or on my computer actually and see what was meant to be a Christian representation. And I would get angry. I would get resentful. I would say, how could you represent Jesus that way? There's nothing about Jesus and what you're saying and doing. And I just felt God had to arrest me. God had to put his finger into my heart and say, son, you're becoming a cynic and a skeptic. There's no hope for you to create an alternative reality if that's where your heart anchors itself. 
Okay, so Romans chapter 12, we're going to walk our way through it a little bit and uh, see what Paul offers to the Romans. And I don't have to tell you what Rome was like. It certainly was not a godly place. Therefore, I urge you. Oh, hello. Did I do something? I know. Which back pocket? There we go. I urge you. I urge you. All right, I'm urging. I'm going to urge. Isn't that a deep father's cry? This is not a, a drill sergeant instruction. This is not a moment where he says, well, you better. He, he says, I urge you. The father's heart cries out. One of my favorite urge you stories is with Meryl. When uh, Tion was about three years old, four years old, uh, I get a call. Where I'm in an elders meeting in our church up in Brea. And I get a call to say, please come home. There's a rattlesnake amongst Tion's toys. So I do what every wise man does. One of the elders with me had been a missionary in Africa and killed many snakes. So I just thought for at least two seconds and then I said, Jay, would you come with me? So we run up the hill to our home and lo and behold, there's this big fat rattler that's now crept in under the toy box. Tian is sleeping. He's having his afternoon nap. And uh, probably today I would call someone who would catch the snake and release it. But in that Moment in time, my mind was still African, and so I did the African thing, as I, we, Jay killed the snake. Well, hey, I held the board so the snake wouldn't escape, okay? I was, I was the best sous chef in that moment. Now, the point of the story is this. Meryl is obviously deeply impacted by the moment. And when Tian wakes up, there's blood everywhere. We're cleaning the whole thing up, and she calls him. And she gets on her knees, grabs his little face, and says, T, what did you say to him, my love? Um, Can you speak loudly or should I give you a uh, microphone? I, I, I just said, Tian, if you see a snake, you stand very, very, very still. And you shout at the top of your voice for mommy or daddy. And then walk back very, very, very slowly. That was the best I could do. And he said what to you? And so I said, okay, now repeat after me. What do you do if you see a snake? And he says, I run very fast, screaming. <laughs> so he didn't quite get it that time. But, but you see, there's an urging here because there's imminent danger. If you don't get this, is what Paul is saying, the potential is too dramatic. And so what he does is he walks us through what I think are four images, pictures, if you wish, of what the church looks like in dark times like this. Brothers and sisters, he isn't, that's what he goes on to write, it's not just familial language. It really means brother and sister. It means that you and I can become as brother and sister. It means that there are people who know what's knowable about you in this community. How will we face the great onslaught that the enemy's going to throw at us by ourselves? My passion, oh my passion, is for every one of you, for a microphone that works, and then, and then I'll switch, I'll switch, uh, AJ, I'll do something. My passion is for every one of us to understand the beauty and wonder of what 
Christian community really looks like. Well, Chris, how do you know? Well, I got saved in 1976. I lived communally. I lived with a bunch of guys and gals. I, I, and, and to this day, I am persuaded by the joy and wonder of partnership in the gospel. I need people who know me. I'm not a mouth. I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a, a, a walking preacher. I have hard days. I have easy days. I, I, I get discouraged. Sometimes it feels too big for me. We've just Carpinteria. Meryl's bridesmaid lives in Carpinteria with her husband. And we e-biked around the coast this morning. And I felt the call to Carpinteria. I know that I'm going to look at the price of houses tonight to see if the Lord is telling me to live a selfish, narcissistic, self-preoccupied life without you in Carpinteria. I'm not saying that about Bruce and Lena. I'm saying that about my heart. Because my heart, like your heart, wants to drift from the power and the wonder of togetherness, of usness, and become preoccupied with me. Pure, rank narcissism. So, Paul says this. Sorry, my Bible turned the page there. In view of God's mercy... Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing for, to God, for this is your true and proper worship. You know, the picture here, dear friends, the urging, the, the, on your knees, face in hand moment, is Paul saying to this community, as I would love to say to every one of you, there is sublime power in the Christian community. Family, if you wish, where we really do life together and we, we see each other the way we are. Warts and all, the good, the bad and the ugly. And we do life together around that in lieu of God's mercy. I need mercy with you. You need mercy with me. It's when we create a performance and the sound is cool and the lights are great and the smoke machine ushers its little, little nuanced moments and everyone gets a warm feeling. Folks, that is not a Jesus community. That's a fabulous production. But it isn't transcendence, transparency and holiness. The second thing I see in this passage instantly is the temple. Because it says in lieu of, um, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. You know, those who drift from community. My heart breaks for you. And forgive my passion tonight. I've just been doing this for 44 years. I remember your age. I was 19, 18 when I got saved. And I remember hearing a preacher tell the story of an old-time Presbyterian, Scottish Presbyterian, who went and uh, visited one of his congregants in the outlying areas. And they sat in front of the fire, sipping at their Scottish uh, whiskey and... Um, as they sat there, the old pastor looked at his congregant, raw, rugged, kind of old-timer farmer, and he said to him, and I wish I was bold enough with my Scottish accent, but I don't think I'll pull it off tonight. And, and, and he said to him, Ah, hi. Why you're not coming to church then? Come on, that's not bad. Excuse me, can I have a little bit of love here? All right, thank you. Thank you. 
And of course, this, thank you, my love, for um, get behind me, Satan. Um, so, uh, so, so the, the old guy sits there and he gives all the reasons why. And the, 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 the old pastor doesn't say anything. He just takes the coal, one coal, and he moves it out of the fire. And they sit there sipping their scotch and smoking their cigars. Sorry, I'm just getting really romantic in the picture now. But apparently it is a true story. And as they sat there sipping their scotch, this coal got colder and colder and it lost its flame. You see, the old pastor didn't have to explain it to him because he saw the implications. God attaches us to church called family, but then God attaches us to church called temple. The other evening here, we had probably one of the most sublime worship events I've been in in about three years. We worshiped the king. Delaney danced magnificently. I just sit there watching this. I don't know, Delaney, how tall are you? I'm going to be generous and say 5'2 or 4'8. Whatever, whatever. It was a sublime moment of worship. And Tyler and the guys were, Tyler and the guys, the Justin Timberlake thing going there, were, were leading us in this incredible moment. And I just drank it in. Because Paul's second picture he says, the will of God is good, pleasing, and perfect when we worship together. Oh, no, no, Chris, you see, you don't understand, actually. You know, see, you, you don't really get this thing that I do me, and you do you, and, uh, you know, I'll do it when it's favorable and when it's convenient for me. Oh, I love all of that unbiblical, unhelpful, narcissistic language. It has no basis in Scripture. How do I know? Because I'm a human being just like you. And I know because there are times I need my arms to be lifted just like you do. Mm. Here we go. John Mark's just done a great series, I said I'd quote him, called Future Church. And what he does, and it's worth a, a listen actually, and what he does is he compares community to the prevailing patterns of this world. And this is what he says are the patterns of this world. Number one, individualism and tribalism. Number one, the patterns of this world. Number two, the ideological idolatry. I worship the idol of my own opinion. Number three, moral relativism. The pattern of this world, I craft my own morality. I was speaking to, I was down in San Diego this week, and I met with a pastor down there, and he told me this story. He said we were doing 1 Corinthians 5, 6, 7, and he said one of our amazing young teachers, a young guy, 29 years old, I think it was, got up to teach the part about being single, and he headed out the park. It was an incredible talk. A church full of young people. But what the pastor didn't know is this guy was actually sleeping with his girlfriend. And eventually the guilt was too much and he came and he confessed. He said, listen, I, I actually have been living a lie. I've got to tell you. He said, even while I was preaching on the beauty and the wonder and the holiness of singleness, I was sleeping with my new girlfriend. The pastor very wisely said, well, what do you think you should do? He said, well, I've got to repent. 
And he said, I preach publicly. I think I have to repent publicly. He said, well done. You actually do have to. This is not a private thing. This is a very public thing. This young man got up and confessed to the whole congregation and it is of some size. The interesting thing was the following week in some of the small group conversations was not what a brave man, what a courageous man. How incredible that you walk that vulnerably and transparently with the community. It was, who the hell do they think they are? What you do in private is up to you. It's got nothing to do with anyone else. That's not this. It's not a community journeying together with all of the faults and frailties that our humanness screams at us. Individualism and tribalism. Ideological idolatry. Moral relativism. I wish I was as clever as John Mark. Outrage and fear. Logical polarization and careerism are the ones that he said. Which is the one you are most vulnerable to? We all are. That's why I told the story about Carpinteria. Because the individual in me, oh, let's just leave the community and move to Carpinteria. Do you know how cool it is? We can sell our, uh, our uh, house here. We can get a really cool house. Maybe with a bit of an ocean view. I was salivating. I was coveting. I knew the Lord was about to speak to me. <laughs> I, it was obvious. See, see, we're all vulnerable. It's not those people do these things. It's we people do those things. Okay, I must move on very quickly. The pattern of this world is a huge phrase, and every generation has to identify and combat the pattern of this world, but we can't do it alone. Friday night, a, a young guy turned 18 in a church I work with up past Allen, uh, Thousand Oaks. And so they did a fire pit thing, and uh, we all brought gifts that had prophetic significance. And we spoke the prophetic significance over the gifts. And I just sat there and I'd kind of mulled over it, prayed about it. And the scripture God had given me was from Joel. Rouse the warriors. Kind of put the armor on. It's time to be a soldier. And I said to him, Andrew, I got up and I had, um, you will happy, happy to know. Uh, I, I gave him a billabong backpack and I filled it with a whole bunch of stuff. It's, it's, a, it's a changing of the guard. It's your generation. You guys now have to take the fight. And my fight in South Africa was apartheid. Racial hatred and injustice of the most dastardly kind. We fought that. We had to. We had no option. You read the Bible, and you saw a nation like South Africa, you had no option. You could not be quiet. You could not be reserved. You could not let others do it. You had to. The Bible doesn't give you an option. But you see, our generation had our wars, and we did them well or badly. But I said to him, Andrew, your generation now needs to pick up the whatever weapon it is and go and do battle. Alright, I'm taking way too much time here. Verse 3, For by the grace given me I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each. Remember, we've seen this little Kodak moment of the church's family, the Kodak moment of the church's temple worshipping together, and now we have this Kodak moment, and here it comes. In accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have the same function, so in Christ we, 
Though many form one body. Can you say one body? Thank you. I just felt like being a little Pentecostal there for a moment. You know what I'm saying? All right. Though many form one body. Genesis, we are one body. And every member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, prophesy in accordance with your faith. That if it is serving, serve. If it's teaching, teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's to give, give generously. If it's to lead, lead diligently. It is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Alright, time for a story. I was speaking to a, a young guy. Well, he's not young anymore. Uh, he took over the first church we planted. And did a great job with it. And now he's leading a church up in Pretoria in South Africa. Felt God say to him, I want you to build a 3,000-seater. I didn't think it was a good idea, but as the story unfolds, you realize just how stupid I am. 80 million rand. It's hard to translate into what that is in pure American currency, but I'm going to stay with the South African one for just a moment. And I felt God say, do it cash. Okay. Well, what they didn't know was there was a pandemic coming. So this is a now story. So the pandemic hits, and they've signed the architect, they've passed all the, the, the papers, they are laying the foundation, and the pandemic hits. Story after story of God's sovereign provision. Who builds an 80 million rand building in these days? Well, Rory does. Because you see, he's got the gift of faith. Now, he doesn't operate by himself out there in the gift of faith. He operates and expresses it in community. They get to a place where they've paid 70 million rand. And there's no more money. Not a dime is coming in. They've got 2 million left in the kitty. And they need 10. So he says to the elders, what we need to do, ladies and gentlemen, this is three weeks ago. Or whatever, super recent. He says to the elders, I want you to write out a check to another church that's building for 600,000 rand. The elders said, what the hell are you talking about? He said, well, you know the truth. You always give yourself out of financial pressure. You don't become stingy and selfish and spend your money on yourself. You give it away. So they write a check. I'm sure some of them must have felt super weird. Say, really? Listen, he said. If we have to raise 10 million, what's 600,000? So they send the check off to this little church that was struggling like they were. Rory goes on holiday, goes on vacation. I love that part of the story. It's like Jesus slept in the boat. You know what I mean? It's like, now it's up to God. If the money doesn't come in, we are in the hole. About four days later, a little bitty girl, not Delaney, a little bitty girl driving a golf pulls up to their officers, gets out the car, masked up, they can't identify. She says, I don't want you to try to find out who I am. But in about, I think the date is right. She said, in about 1965, my dad started collecting gold coins. And he said, didn't mention the name, he said, one day we will know which church is worthy of all this money. And she said, I've been watching you and I've been watching this project. I'm not in your church. But I believe God has said, you are the church worthy of this money. And she drops the bag and walks out. Can you imagine the elders rubbing their hands with glee? Counting. Six million rand. Six million 
ran. What happened? A man with the gift of faith exercised the gift of faith. But it was premeditated with the gift of generosity. Now they've got 6 million. They have got 1.4 million, but they're still short. And the commitment to the contractor was, we will pay you in cash. One of the elders, a dear friend, came and he said, I've got nothing more to give. I've given beyond anything else. He said, but I can do this. He said, there's a thousand kilometer cycle race that's going to happen. Non-stop. And he said, I've got a few friends who will sponsor me if I ride it. And he said, I'd like to give all the money that I make to the building fund. Roy said, that's absolutely fabulous. Clint cycles a thousand kilometers non-stop. When all the money comes in, it's 2.4 million rand. On the Friday, they gave the contractor 10 million in cash. You see, ladies and gentlemen, that's a story where the body comes together and everyone is not a little finger floating out there doing their own thing or a hand cut off from the wrist just drifting around there or an arm that is disconnected and no real value or virtue. Are you with me? The picture of a body, the church made up of all these parts, Rory leading out and this little girl contributing and Clint riding through the night thousand kilometers all adding to this great picture and they give the contract to 10 million rand and the job is done not only is the church a family and that's beautiful not only is it a temple where we gather to worship and encounter the living God but it's also a place a body where we all bring our parts are you with me yeah. you know my sadness every Sunday is that we do this you may say, well, what do you mean? Oh, I'd much rather us be eating together. I'd much rather us sitting around the table like we did when we started and just enjoy the food and everyone tells their story. And yes, then we worship and yes, we pray our prayers and yes, we tell our stories. But every member belongs to others and the grace is given to each of them. I was having coffee with uh, Josh Harrison. Josh, I'm landing. This is not a three times landing. This is a landing, Wendy Pierce. This is, I'm finished. And I said to Josh Harrison, Josh used to be the teaching pastor at Rock Harbor. He's now planted Canopy Church here in the East Coast of Mass. I said, I said to him, um, Josh, tell me something. I said, when the city speaks about Genesis, if they do, what do they say? I thought, I never had the opportunity to ask people a question like that and, and he looked at me he said you know many years ago many years ago a man walked up to me after I preached stranger and he said you know what astounds me is that you guys actually believe this stuff and he said when I think of Genesis in Costa Mesa it's that phrase you guys actually believe this stuff you actually want to build community you actually want to live for the common good you actually want to sacrifice your lives. You actually want to lay your life down. You actually want to be generous. He said, that's the gift Genesis gives the city. I sat there. I was honestly mesmerized. I didn't know what to expect, but I couldn't have expected better than that. We want to be a strong, healthy, robust, multiplying community. 
Not about Chris. I'm too old for that. It's about you and your gifts and your contributions and what you do and us knitting our hearts together in this great adventure of faith. We're going to come to the table now. Thank you, Dana, for doing it so wonderfully. I don't know, there's something sublime about the ordinariness of an Hawaiian roll. <laughs> I'd prefer a big Jewish loaf, would be super fun, but not tonight. Tonight's about taking a little bun, a little roll, and reflecting for just a moment the body of our Lord Jesus Christ that was broken for us. Take, eat, and do it in remembrance of me. We know that was a meal. We know it wasn't a little nip and a sip as we do in most churches, and we've done it. But it's something far more sublime than that. It's when we actually take the bread and we break it, and it's incredible ordinariness to say, Jesus, your brokenness was for our wholeness, personally and communally. Both. And as we do it, I'm going to ask you to be super, super honest with Jesus tonight. Say, Jesus, where am I less than given to the power and the beauty of community? Why is it that people measure themselves by how many likes they have on Instagram? How many followers they get on one of the social media? Because we actually want to belong. We want to be a tribe. We want to feel like others think like we think. Well, this is what makes that happen to us. What we'd love you to do is, um, in a moment, someone from every little grouping, it's about the safest COVID-friendly way we can do it. Thanks, man. Thanks for letting me be passionate tonight. I, I, I'm so zealous for his house. I'm so zealous for his house. It's his bride. I didn't get to other things I wanted to say tonight from Romans 12. You know, I loved walking my daughters down the aisle. Both of them. Dana's here. And my other daughter is in Australia. I loved it. It's one of the highlights of my life forever and ever. But what I loved about it is watching the whole story unfold. The moment there was this decision to get married. Instantly that group of women, mama bear, grandmama bears, sisters, friends, rallied together and just wanted it to be the most incredible time for Dana or Nas. Isn't that magnificent? I stood there in my suit car waiting and I watched everyone fuss and nails and hair and makeup and dresses and suitcases and have you got everything you need to go on honeymoon everyone was around making it the most wonderful day I said Jesus only you can talk about the church like a bride where everything else stops at that moment and what matters is the bride that's what we do you me we are the bride plural of Jesus.
the body of our Lord Jesus Christ that was broken for us. Take it, and as you meditate or reflect, saying, God, where am I, intentionally or otherwise, drifting from the beauty of togetherness? And can I make a decision tonight to re-engage around the beauty? It'd be fun if it's here, but it doesn't have to be here. You know that. It's where there's family, where there's temple, and where there's bride together. And then there's wine and grape juice, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. I have been deeply hurt by the church. I mean, like really deeply hurt. I had a man walk up to me one day and he said, you know, we, him and his mate, are committed to destroying me. We will destroy your reputation. We will destroy your integrity. We will question your message. He would walk during a moment like this and tell people, don't worry about what Chris says. It's a bunch of crap. Why in the meeting? It's pretty brutal, man. But you see, the bride is beautiful. She's adorned in her righteous robes. Beautifully reflecting the groom who has whispered her, his deep affection for her. She is beautiful. So it's so easy to throw off those thoughts. Easy. No, no, she's way more beautiful then your thoughts are harsh. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that comes through His precious blood. Take it and the musicians will play for us. Please come and get for your group.